0: Father, thank you for the fact that you are our refuge for our weary souls. Uh, maybe we're walking in here tonight feeling pretty good, actually. Maybe we're not feeling too weary. Maybe we are indeed walking in here tonight feeling super heavy, laden and beaten down. Whatever the case may be, you are always our refuge. You are our fortress. You are a rock. And so we pray that as we prepare to hear your word, that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your spirit is saying to us, your church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and take a seat, gang. Welcome back to Epiphany for uh, our series in the book of Revelation. We're looking at, we've called it Revelation, Things Get Weird, of course, because uh, Revelation is... uh, sort of synonymous in many people's minds with a very weird and strange book of the Bible. It uh, has all sorts of allusions and all sorts of uh, symbolism and things that make it very confusing to us and uh, the purpose of this study through this book is to try and at least illuminate uh, this so that it's not so intimidating for us. Now, uh, last time when we gathered together around the book of Revelation, we looked at Jesus' message to seven churches throughout Asia Minor. And he wads he them, he rebukes them, he warns them and makes promises to them. It is, uh, according to John, a description of, quote, things that are in those first three chapters. Things that are. That is, it's a description of the present time those churches were going through. That's what we can take away from that. By the time we get to chapter 4, things have shifted. We read, after this, I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you What must take place after this? So the first three chapters were that time. Now we're getting into something later. This tells us that the, the contents of what will be revealed to John are going to be declaring to us at least some things that have to do with the future. But first, before John can do uh, or hear anything about what's coming after this, really beginning in chapter 6 is where you get sort of that real futuristic uh, style of talk, John is brought before uh, a heavenly drama that depicts for the churches the reality of things from heaven's perspective. So the first three chapters are, this is what it looks like for you right now, you're going through some persecution, or you're dealing with false teaching, and that's the way it appears, and there's this struggle and this strife and this chaos and this hardship, that's the way it looks from your perspective. But now, God is giving us the way it looks from his perspective. And the first fact about that perspective John reports to us is the reality of God's sovereign rule over the universe. Look at verses two through three. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald as was the the case with the prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah before him, recorded for us in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, John sees a vision of the throne of God, and just like them, is struck with awe. He does not describe the appearance of God but instead describes the brilliant colors and beauty that really are meant to shroud him from the full glory of God, because we know that what happens when people come into the presence of the glory of God is they indeed shrink back and are terrified at what they see. And so these colors, this jasper and this carnelian and the rainbow, are all meant to suggest the beauty and the glory of God's throne room. They're meant to suggest the promises of God. Remember, the rainbow is something that God gave as a promise to Noah way back in the day that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. It's all highly symbolic language to suggest the awe and beauty. God's glory. Verse 4, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now scholars are not unanimous in their understanding of just who these 24 elders are. Uh, You read some scholars, some believe that these combined to be the 12 heads of the nation of Israel, because there were 12 tribes, and combined with the 12 apostles. And so that equals 24, and maybe this is symbolism for these 24 people together, these 24 uh, leaders of, really, the church for all time, in both the Old and the New Covenant. Some believe that they could represent the church, uh, or, or represent the 24 orders of priests and singers that worshipped God Uh, in his heavenly sanctuary recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 24 and 25, because there are indeed 24 orders of singers. And still others believe it could be really kind of a secret stab by John at the Roman imperial cult worship, since the emperor Domitian supposedly had 24 lictors surrounding his throne at all times, singing praises to him case may be, because it's not definitive and because it doesn't tell us definitively, the point still is clear. God is the ultimate sovereign one who should receive praise and not anyone else. That's the point. He's not done harkening back to scenes around Mount Sinai and Ezekiel's vision of heaven. We read verse 5 from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal when Moses and Aaron were summoned to fellowship with God in the book of Exodus chapter 24, they saw something very similar to what John reports here, the sea of glass that came together. The seven spirits of God represent God's Uh, sight throughout all the world. Seven in Revelation is this number of completion and perfection. It's this, again, this acknowledgement that God sees everything, that there's nothing outside of his scope or power or his control. Ezekiel sees a similar vision when he comes into the presence of God, a sea of crystal, a sea of glass. Now this is, I think, a very cool little detail. All throughout scripture, if you look at the way the sea is depicted from humanity's perspective, it is seen as treacherous and terrifying with with its unruly waves and tremendous sea creatures and unpredictable storms that happen out upon the sea. But before the throne of the sovereign God, this untamable beast sits so still that it's like crystal. So put all of that together. What you just read And the clear declaration being made to John and to the churches and to you is that even when we face poverty or persecution, even when we struggle and sin and fight from God's perspective in heaven, everything is not chaos. He is the one that contained the sea. And make it still like crystal. It's an important reminder for us to have. It certainly was an important reminder for the church in the first century to have. God really is in charge, folks. The universe isn't spinning into accidental oblivion. But somehow, some way is being guided directly by a God who is over it all. And listen, folks, you don't really have many other options. Either the universe is indeed just one sort of uh, chaotic event after another that's eventually going to lead to us all being space dust, or somehow, some way, there's a sovereign God over this thing. And yet, I promise you, If this is the extent of the God you have, a God who is sort of like the deist God, yes, he's there, and yes, he's sovereign, and yes, he has power over all things, but nothing else, it's not enough. And we'll get to that in just a bit. Even as God affirms his rule over, or or talks about his rule over the universe, he also talks about it in terms of being intimately involved with it. So he's not just up there, but he's actually affirmative of his creation as we continue. Continuing on verse 6, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. What do these creatures represent? Well, besides being very similar to what both Ezekiel and Isaiah saw in their visions of the heavenly realm, these creatures represent the pinnacle of God's creation. As one Jewish source and tradition from the time would put it, quote, man is exalted among the creatures, the eagle among the birds, the ox among domesticated animals, and the the lion among wild beasts. And all of them have received dominion. This is in a Jewish source at the time. This was common Jewish thought about these animals. John is referencing that. And what is he he saying? What What does it mean that they have eyes all over their head? Their dominion is represented by these eyes all over their bodies, that they rule and oversee certain spheres of earthly life, that God has placed them in charge of certain spheres of his creation. So what we are seeing is that in the throne room of heaven, God affirms the roles of his creation as good. And throughout Revelation, he's going to use these parts of his creation to implement his divine heavenly plan for his world. Now, this is important because we have to keep in mind at the time that this was written, uh, this would have had great theological significance as early Gnostic teachers who taught that all matter was bad were creeping into the church. They were saying, any physical substance is bad. It's only the spiritual that matters. And this right here is a way of God saying, no, no, no. I place the lion there, I place the ox there, I place the eagle there, I place man there, and they're used by me in their physical substance. They're good. Creation is good. Fallen, yes, still good. Because God made it, and what God makes is good. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, And day and night, and they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying... So the point of the drama so far for John is twofold. One, that God is ruler over all things in heaven and on earth. He is worshipped above all as the one over space and time. And as such, we read in Revelation 5.1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. The scroll, as we'll go go on to see in the rest of the book, uh, could have many possible writings on it. It could be a a scroll of prophetic utterances that contain God's will and plan for the rest of history, the rest of time. It could be the book of life in which the names of those who will go to heaven are written. Whatever the case, this seven-sealed scroll is meant to assure us that this sovereign God actually does have a plan for this world. Well, it's a majestic scene brought before us. It really is. I mean, it's, it's majestic. It's beautiful. I assume, we would assume, that this picture of a God who is holy and sovereign in control of heaven and earth would bring tremendous comfort. But there's a problem. There's a problem. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice "Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Far from finding comfort in God's sovereign control of all things, If nobody is open or worthy to open the scroll, then his holiness and his sovereignty is something for humanity, for sinners, to dread. Indeed, the Bible is abundantly clear everywhere that no one in heaven or earth or under the earth is worthy to open the scroll in and of themselves. No one's worthy to come into the presence of God and certainly not worthy to come to the right hand of the holy, majestic King. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and cannot, simply cannot have access to this heavenly presence. Since the scroll contains God's plan, and yes, even God's plan for life and eternity. If there's no one worthy, it means the scroll stays sealed. It means access is held off. It means there isn't any future to speak of. Only death and destruction await us. Maybe he really is just a distant God that we will never actually be able to have access to. Maybe he is uncaring and apathetic about it all. Maybe he has not given us an opportunity to stand in his presence. And so John's response, folks, is entirely appropriate. And I begin to weep loudly because he knows what this means. We're doomed. We're damned. We don't have a chance here. But the scene is not over. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Hallelujah, there is one after all. Praise God. And by the description of him, he's everything we've always wanted a Messiah to be strength and power and might. Yes, give me a lion of the tribe of Judah and somebody as strong, full of military prowess as David for my Savior. Then the twist. John turns to look at what he is. What is called a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this strong earthly king, David, being his forefather. Instead, what he sees is this. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John turns to look at this lion and all he sees is a slaughtered lamb. What's the point? The point is, in God's sight, the one who is worthy is not the one who came in the power of the lion, but gave himself up in the weakness of a lamb. Though the seven horns and and the seven eyes do represent that he has always been all-powerful and that he's always been all-knowing, that is still true. He is, in this one sense, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Son of God. He is divine. Yes, that's all true. But he laid those privileges down, Philippians 2, verses 5-11 through says, so that he could be sacrificed as an offering for the world on the cross. So as a result, what's really going on in heaven and on earth is this. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Remember, remember, there's just 24 elders, there's angelic beings, there's, there's John looking at this from a distance. And then the Lamb takes the scroll. That's it. That's all we know. But look what happens instantly as soon as the Lamb takes the scroll. And when He had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 hours fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Remember, our prayers, intercessor. But now that the Lamb has come, the intercessor has come, our prayers are brought before the throne of God. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy. What heaven is filled with are the praises of the lamb because the lamb has ransomed you and I back from death and hell as sinners and declared us to be holy and priests in his sight now, his servants in his sight. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels Numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands and worshiped. You want to know what's really going on in the midst of the struggle of your life, the difficulty of your life, the sin that you can't seem to beat, the friends that aren't always reliable, the job that doesn't always satisfy the way you hoped for, and on and on it goes. On the good days and the bad days, what's really going on is you, right now are being interceded for by the Lamb of God who's taken away your sin before the throne of God and therefore gives you access to this heavenly worship even right now so that when you sing these songs tonight God is being worshiped and hearing your praises. So that when you pray out of desperation, God is hearing that prayer and, yes, even answering that prayer. But it all starts here. This is the real world. This is only temporal. This is a mist, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. It's a vapor. It goes by like that. I have had to do so many visitations for so many years now, 12 plus years in the ministry to people that are dying and people that are their last days, and they all say the same thing to me. Even if they're 90, even if they're 100, they say, it goes so fast. With that reality before us, We need to remember that this is really reality. This is what we have to look forward to. Our future is secure because the Lamb of God has been slain to ransom us. God is decidedly for us and not against us. So we will not be left weeping with John, but we will bow down rejoicing in. Father, it is so good to know that this is ultimately true. Not our circumstances, not our experiences, not our failures, not even our victories. What's really true is that you're sovereign over the world, that you love your world, that you sent your son to redeem this world, and therefore he is worthy to open up the future to all of us. As we continue in worship now, may you be glorified and honored. As we pray the prayer our Savior gave us with one voice, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil,